From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 251. Today's show is brought to you by Astro Patch Studio, ExpressVPN, ButcherBox, and PDF Pen 11. From Smile, it is the summer of fun. Summer of fun! My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by my surfing partner in crime, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Uh, hang loose, dude. It's the summer of fun. It most certainly is. The summer of fun <laughs> still starts the same way as every episode of Upgrade does, with a hashtag Snell Talk question. This one comes from Shaker Ben, who asks, How many hours has Smart Speed saved you in Overcast? Ben is up to 289 hours, which is a lot of saved hours. So, Jason, mm-hmm. how many hours have you saved by listening to podcasts in Overcast with the uh, silence all being removed and sped up when needed? Overcast tells me that I've saved 121 hours, which is great. Um, I will point out I don't have a commute, so I, I definitely don't have as much of a podcast load as a lot of people do. I'm not. I'm. I'm skeptical that I didn't lose numbers, lose hours along the way there somewhere. But uh, 121. I'm up to 180, which is a lot of hours. It's many hours saved. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, the seven and a half days for you and five days for me. So I guess thanks to Marco Arment for saving Mm -hmm. us uh, many days out of our lives or really just packing in more podcast episodes. That's pretty much how that works. Thank you so much to Ben for that Snell Talk question. You can submit a question for a future episode of the show. Just send out a tweet with the hashtag Snell Talk and it may be picked for a episode in the future. Summer related questions would be, uh, I would appreciate those as we are in the summer of fun right now. So anything summer related, send it in. Um, and uh, I'll be happy. I'll be happy to see those. But we have some follow up today, Jason. Um, Mark wants us to share our current home screens, which I feel is only fair considering the mess that we caused many upgradients over the last week. Um, do, I'm sure you saw as I did. Many people changed their home screen to the official upgrade home screen, uh, which is kind of amazing. And I apologize to all of those people for having to have done that. <laughs> I uh, I had to change my home screen to take the screenshot in the show notes of our home screen that we picked, and then I had to change it back because I wasn't going to leave it there. That would be just a bad idea. I appreciated so, you doing that for for yeah. for the show notes last week's episode. It had to be done. It had to be done. We had to show people what it looked like. Do you? So uh, I, I, you have my. You have an image of my home screen. I have an image of yours. Yes. Just as a, a quick thing. Do you? Do you have any comments? Um, I don't, I, I, I'm just looking at it now. I don't know if I do. Um, I think I've managed to turn off all of my little notification bubbles. Uh, maybe not messages. You just took that with messages in. Uh, I, I might have a few. Um, I turn off and, most. And you have apps and you have apps that I just don't use, which is amazing. So, you know, so many timery discord, Airtable, um, pipe drive, Airtable, pipe drive yeah. narwhal. So no, Airtable and pipe drive, they are like, business tools right yeah like sales related yep. tools novel is my reddit app you gotta um, drive those pipes you gotta drive the pipes and then i use discord for some stuff evernote for some stuff as well timer is my time tracking you you use any list which i know is like a grocery list that's thing my, that's right? my shared grocery list with my family yeah but i never used that Use Apple Maps. Test flight on the home screen is an interesting choice i think <laughs> you know i was gonna bring it up last week um and I decided that, you know, most people are not like me and have lots of betas. But I have lots of betas, so I keep test flight out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking Always at Always updating now. the uh the betas. Yeah, you don't have a I, I, there are there are, I have 
all of the questions that I have for you are not really about the home screen, but it's more just like, why do you use that app over that app? And I just don't want to <laughs> sure. have that conversation today. Yeah. In California, Apple Maps is very good. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that's what they say. I've heard that before. That is what they say. Um, we mentioned, uh, we, actually, we want to give another gift to the Upgradians as we were in the summer. And that is official Summer of Fun desktop and mobile wallpapers. Yeah, this came up. I, I was taking that screenshot last time and I scaled up our Summer of Fun art, but I thought uh, I that would be great to actually have Summer of Fun wallpaper. So I have been using the desktop wallpaper on my iPad for the last few days, and it makes me very happy because it, mm-hmm. it feels very summery. Uh, so whenever I open my iPad, it's like this beautiful summer uh, backdrop for me. So you can you yep, can get too. those in our show notes too. Uh, if you want to go get those, it should be in your podcast app of choice or at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 251 is this week's episode. And you can get the wonderful uh, Summer of Fun wallpapers for free just for being a wonderful upgrade. And we will offer those to you because we're nice like that, aren't we, Jason? Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to uh, give a quick reminder for something. We are doing a big fifth anniversary Relay FM live show in August. It's on August 22nd in San Francisco. Um, our company turns five years old a couple of days beforehand. And we're going to be doing a big live show with a bunch of Relay FM hosts that are going to be coming in. And we're going to be doing like a big variety show. Jason Snell will be there, won't you, Jason Snell? I will. Um, along with many I live other. Here. Well, exactly. It's pretty easy, easy for, for me. Um, along with many other wonderful Relay FM hosts. So tickets are still available for that. Uh, it's on August 22nd, and I will put a link in the show notes so you can buy a ticket and come out. Um, I th- We are working to try and make this the best possible show it can be, and I'm very excited about it. So uh, I think that you will really like it if you can make it out. We're going to be doing big, wonderful live show with uh, lots of surprises and wonderful, fun things. So you can get tickets for that right now. Um, and again, that will be in the show notes uh, as well for you if you want to grab a link to that. Jason, I think it's time for the triumphant return of Upstream, which has been taking a many, many week break over the WWDC period. But I have a couple of things that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, One of them is J.J. Abrams. Um, J.J. Abrams is apparently nearing a deal with WarnerMedia for $500 million. Um, Apparently, J.J. was in talks with everyone, you would assume, Apple and NBC Universal as well, about securing a multi-year partnership, which will be a first look at any project that Bad Robot, his production company, uh, works on. A first look is basically like a first right of refusal, right? Like, if you're working on something, we want to be able to take it first. Um, I'm not sure, like, and you might know, this half a million dollars must have at least a minimum amount of content attached to it, though, right? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, so it's producing, right? And I'm sure they will get, uh, well, I mean, the idea is that they get a first, a first look. So I'm not sure whether there's a minimum or not. Maybe there's a minimum and then there's an opt out or something like that. It's contract details, but the way it works is basically they are given, you know, any show that they are developing and producing, they're offering to, in this case, Warner Media and saying, you get for write a first refusal for this movie, for this TV show we're developing, all of that. Um, and what that means is that if J.J. Abrams wants to develop something for uh, and and they think it's really good, and Warner Media is not interested in it. It doesn't die. They get to shop it somewhere else and do it. But yeah, it, you'd think that if you're 
Warner Media, you'd want to protect yourself against J.J. Abrams deciding, well, thanks for the half a billion dollars. Now I'm going to make a bunch of things you don't want yes. to buy. If like the next the next six years of stuff from Bad Robots all crap, right? Then like you know, because this is um he had this deal with Paramount, so he 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 was in a deal with Paramount. Uh, in 2006, he made this deal with them, uh, which is, again, a multi-year deal for $55 million. It's very different, right? It's a hugely different amount of money. And there was some stuff that, that which was interesting. So uh, the Cloverfield Paradox, which was a one of the movies in the Cloverfield thing, like Paramount just said, we don't want that. And that's why it ended up yeah. on Netflix. So, you know, there's, there's stuff like that. Um, yeah. Uh, also, the, you know, producing versus directing, but also like like Paramount made that deal with J.J. Abrams and he did, you know, because he did the, the, a couple of Star Trek movies and he has been producing the Mission Impossible franchise. But at the same time, like as a director, he went off and made uh, now it's going to be two Star Wars movies mm-hmm. for Disney. So, you know, I think that that's the that's a challenge in this is like, you know, presumably in the negotiations there, in addition to the big pile of money is, uh, some, uh, structure here in terms of obviously they're going into it thinking that he, his company is going to primarily supply Warner media with content and that that's, that's the idea here, but there have to be in any creative business. I mean, there have to be, uh, places where if you create a show, I mean, this happens on on TV now where somebody creates a show for that company's network and they pass on it and it goes to a competitor's network. And that's weird, but, you know, you went through all the trouble to develop the show. You want to sell the show. And if if the the home team isn't buying, you go to the other team. Um, It is unclear as to whether this deal will allow him to continue making his own, directing feature films for other companies, right? So like if Disney come knocking again, I would expect for this amount of money, it will probably lock him in. It, the, it, what's unclear to me is, uh, based on the coverage, is whether this locks him in as a director or just as a producer. Because yeah. he is a prolific producer of film and TV. Bad Robot has produced a surprising amount of stuff, stuff that you wouldn't even think of, that J.J. Abrams' name is never really connected with. Like Westworld is a good example of that. That series is a, you know, J.J. Abrams' name is on it as an executive producer. Like, he didn't make Westworld and yet it is part of that kind of you know machine so there and there are are like lots of shows that come out of Bad Robots so um, I think that's the question is like how much is this about getting J.J. Abrams as a as a writer and a producer and then as a director and it's not impossible that his role as a director is more uh, is separate from from it like Mm -hmm. That he might get brought in, like Star Wars is a good example where it's like, we need you to direct this. Can you do that? And he's like, all right. Um, but yeah, if I were if I were Warner Media, I would look at what happened with his Paramount deal and say, we gotta do something. And again, it's probably structured that that uh, we have to provide you with a certain amount of work. We have to say yes to a certain number of projects guaranteed uh, because otherwise you could get in a situation if you're J.J. Abrams where you can't do anything you want to do because. Uh, they won't make any of the movies you want to make, and that's not that's not good either. So, so that's part of that. It's fascinating. I don't think I would want to be an entertainment industry lawyer, but it is fascinating to see how you negotiate the structure of a what ends up being at the bottom a creative process because those two things don't really fit together uh, in my mind anyway. Like you're you're trying to build a contract that says you will write a good movie, and it's like that's not how that works. 
But you would expect, though, that this time around, and maybe one of the reasons that the money is so different from, I mean, 2006 to, to now, right? It's like nearly 10 years, but $55 million to $500 million, that's not like a... Well, it is a multimedia deal, whereas the mm-hmm. Paramount deal was film only. Okay. So that's that's part of it. But yeah, it's also the uh, the fact that there are all these different suitors because we're in a different market now. But that also ties into what I was going to say, which is that yeah. you would expect that Warner Media actually need more content than Paramount did because they have a streaming service to fill and putting JJ's name on a bunch of stuff will probably do well yeah. for them like it did for Apple. And he has a good track record of making yes. stuff. I mean, again, you focus on you focus on JJ Abrams and not Bad Robot and you miss like Bad Robot has been producing so many TV shows and uh, having Bad Robot drive that stuff into Warner Media's uh, various cable channels and their streaming service is, is uh, it's an engine that is generating lots of content and they want they need engines generating content like that for their uh, stuff to work. And likewise, so does Apple, you know, so, do, so does Disney, so does uh, Universal, like everybody. And that's why there were multiple suitors for J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot. So, uh, yeah, it's a combination, but it is kind of breathtaking to think about getting paid a half a billion dollars to make uh, movies and TV shows for one company that, that as a just as a uh, an exclusive deal. That's pretty mm-hmm. spectacular. David in the chat mentions a good point that is worth clarifying that half a half a billion would be like consumed quickly as a budget this is not a budget this is not like when apple put a billion dollars aside to make stuff this is like here's a bag of money so we can give you more money to make things right like this this is not a a half a billion dollars that they're putting aside for jj abrams to make tv shows this is a signing bonus. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not entirely that. There may be like rates about like we get a certain number of that, but it's basically we're giving you half a billion dollars to have the exclusive right to your stuff mm-hmm. for the next however many years. Which is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But and there's going to be a lot. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this today is this is another type of thing that we're now going to start seeing more of, I think. Um, these these big names being tied up with companies. Yeah, Greg Berlanti, who did Riverdale, um, did all the superhero shows on the CW. He has a deal with Warner Media. Uh, I mean, that stuff was all with Warner Media already, but now it's mm-hmm. like three hundred million dollars to him to produce more content. Netflix has their deal with Ryan Murphy and their deal with Shonda Rhimes. Right, like these and are the, Obamas. the these are the big producers. That uh, you want to just give them money and say, just make all your stuff oh, for us. This is if like you can, what possibly. Apple and Oprah have. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what 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 we haven't seen Apple do is is sign somebody like a J.J. Uh, Abrams who is has a production company and has made a lot of uh, fiction content. That hasn't happened yet. It may at some point. I think Apple needs to... Apple's working at a disadvantage now because they don't have a track record because yep. they don't even have a service yet. Yep. Um, and, and so it, you know, if you're J.J. Abrams, even if Apple offered the same money, you're, you're sort of like, well... You know, what's it going to be? Are mm-hmm. they going to back out? Are they going to change their mind at some point? I don't right? want to be tied into a service that has a thousand subscribers. Yeah, right? exactly right. <laughs> well, even if you're paying me half a billion dollars exactly. to do it. Like, like what what does that mean? So, yeah, it's a fascinating kind of a, a decision-making process for the companies and for these these creators. But the key thing is, again, it's not a guy who writes a TV show who's getting this money. It's a guy who has a company full of producers who have been generating TV material 
uh, not only working with writers, but also then putting the shows together and the, and movies too. And if you look at, at, at Bad Robot, it's more than just sort of like from the mind of J.J. Abrams. It's it's a whole lot of stuff. And the people inside Bad Robot, other than J.J. Abrams, kind of come and go, but they're also very talented people there who come there and produce a show. And that's what, what the money is doing. Like Mission Impossible is a good example where J.J. Abrams directed a Mission Impossible, but my understanding is that J.J. Abrams continues to get a producer credit and like bad robot produces the mission impossible movies with Tom Cruise. And it's like, they are part of that process. And that's, you know, again, that's not as we focus on the people and it's a little more than that. This is a production deal. So it's about all of bad robot, but it does mean that, you know, JJ has an idea, uh, and JJ's writers that JJ likes who he brings in to work on projects. Like it's all kind of coming from that. JJ Abrams, by the way, a enormous Apple nerd, uh, big Mac fan, just he's one of us. I will point that out. Whether you like or dislike his work, I will say he is uh, he's one of us. He really is. He he sent me an email at one point back in the day from his AOL account. That's how long ago it was. He is uh, definitely uh, an Apple guy. Hi, JJ, if you're listening. <laughs> That's right. Hi to JJ. Mike, realistically, it's going to be like hi to JJ's dad, <laughs> right? Something like that. JJ's cousin. Cousin. Uh, something like That's that. That's fine. Yeah, it all works sure. for me. Okay. Uh, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston's new movie on Netflix, Murder Mystery, broke Netflix viewing records. 30.9 million households saw the movie in the first three days. Netflix only counts a view if 70% of the movie has been seen. So this isn't even people that started the movie and bailed on it. Um, I remember, I don't don't know if we spoke about this, but we may have. uh, Adam Sandler's deal with Netflix was kind of laughed at because it's like, why? This is why, because a lot of people have watched it. Um, This is a movie that probably would not have garnered this kind of audience in theaters. And I think this the reason I brought this to to discuss a little bit today is because I think this is one of the things that makes streaming different. I think people are more willing to try something out than they are if they had to go and pay for a movie ticket. Oh, for sure. For sure. This is, in fact, um, there's an argument to be made that movies that are... It used to be movies went in theaters and you went to see movies and you just needed to be kind of interested. But in today's world, you really need the movie to be an event to go see a movie in the theater Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And there's a whole class of movies that are good movies. I'm not saying this movie is good or bad. It's it's apparently, you know, didn't get great reviews, but Adam Sandler movies don't. But you can have a good movie that... um, but you're like, oh, it's it's a little romantic comedy or something like that. Like I watched a Netflix movie. Uh, I watched uh, Always Be My Maybe, which is a romantic comedy on Netflix. We watched that last weekend, and you know it was fine. But it's one of those things that I could I cannot imagine going out to the movie theater to see a small budget yep. to mid budget romantic comedy. It's like, I just I can't see it. That would go into Blockbuster, and you would pick them out. Right. Except the truth is, these are the movies that that you might have seen 20 years ago in the movie theater. But we have so much entertainment at home now that you need to have... One of the reasons why Marvel has been so successful is because spectacle and events sell at the box office. It's not just that Marvel movies have driven, you know, small movies out of the movie theaters. In part, it's that the movies that work today in movie theaters, that get lots of people out 
of their houses where they've got a nice TV and an infinite selection of content on Netflix, the way you get those people out is by having this like big thing that you want to see on a big screen and everybody's talking about it. And if you don't go see it, you're going to be behind. And I feel like that's where we are. So we look at something like Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston doing a kind of wacky European murder mystery. Like, are people going to go to the movie theater and see that? Maybe not. But if it pops on Netflix, and this is literally a movie I didn't know existed until I I saw it on, I turned on Netflix last weekend uh, when we watched that, that other movie and I was like, huh murder mist is that is that jennifer aniston with adam sandler and it was and i was like okay i'm not i'm totally not gonna watch that movie but i saw it there and the fact that netflix with just the algorithm just their interface was able to drive worldwide mind you but drive 31 million viewings of that movie is that's the power in three days right there right (laughs) yeah three days a movie's nobody heard about it yep but it showed up on your Netflix and you're yep. like, oh, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. Click, watch a movie. That's the power of Netflix. And then those, th- again, it's like those were the 31 million people who watched basically the entire movie. I'm yeah. sure that there are many more millions of people that were like, I don't like this after 20 minutes. and just turned it off. Sure. And, and it's, it's kind of, it's absolutely wild. It's a, this is, this is one of those things where it's like, this is very different this time. Like we've moved into a very different time again. And as you say, right, this is not a marketing budget that drove this. This was Netflix's algorithm. And that is kind of incredible that they are able to push those kinds of numbers just based on the, their own internal marketing at this point. It's, it's really wild. Yeah. And it shows that, I mean, Netflix did, did the deal with uh, Adam Sandler and everybody laughed at it, but obviously worked for Netflix because they made another deal with Adam Sandler. And I think, you know, I don't want to call Adam Sandler a business (laughs) genius or something, but maybe he has an awareness of his appeal and the kind of stuff he wants to make. Talk talk about somebody very different from J.J. Abrams in a lot of ways, but still having to make some creative decisions about yourself in this landscape. And maybe Adam Sandler looked at it and said, you know, the kind of stuff I want to make I am not allowed to make because it won't work in the movie theater. And if I do get something to the movie theater, it's a real crapshoot about whether it'll even work. And Netflix is coming to me and saying, we will bankroll your next four movies and just put them on Netflix. And when he does that, he finds that there's an audience for that. And he realizes, okay, um, why would I not keep doing this? This is where my, right. And and, and that's interesting because there's an ego thing there where it's like, am I just a guy who makes made for TV movies now? You could view it that way if you wanted to, but you could also view it that the kind of movie you want to make is not any longer something that could possibly survive in a movie theater. But Netflix audiences time, kill right? it. Like sure. Adam Sandler had his time where he can make anything, right? And people will go to the, the theaters to see it. And but, he did. <laughs> and he did. And that's maybe part of the problem. Oh, God. Click is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I hate that movie. But I love some of his young, oh, like his earlier stuff, or at least did at the time. You're happy as Gilmore. You're, uh, yeah. You're, oh, I don't even remember what all those movies are. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, I would love, I, I should probably look at, there's probably an article about it, but like the thought process that goes into saying, you know what? I know it doesn't seem glamorous to be, in a movie deal with Netflix, but it's the right thing to do. And the truth is a lot of these smaller movies um, are not going to be seen by anybody in a movie theater. They might be, they might get an art house release or something like that. But for, for a lot of movies at the, at these uh, that aren't these giant blockbusters, 
streaming services may be their best place to be to be seen, which is important for uh, Netflix because they want to you know provide content to their subscribers, and it's important for the creators who want their movies to be seen. All right, today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Sometimes the idea of being snooped on actually seems like something from the movies because who cares about getting your data, right? Well, the bad news is that your privacy can be compromised by people that want your data to sell it. It happens to normal people like me and like you. If you're using unencrypted, if you're using unprotected uh, Wi-Fi connections, there is something you can do to protect yourself from cyber criminals. You can start using ExpressVPN, not tomorrow or sometime next week. You can get it today. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and you use the internet just as you normally do. All you do is download the app, you click to connect, and you're protected. It uses cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure that there are no logs of what you do online as well. Like you are protected, and the stuff is not being kept and sold to somebody else because you will use ExpressVPN. I use ExpressVPN like pretty much always when I travel, when I'm connecting to hotel Wi-Fi's, airport Wi-Fi networks and stuff like that, because I don't really know what's going on with, with the protection of those connections. So I, for my peace of mind, use ExpressVPN. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same protection with ExpressVPN that I have. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com upgrade to learn more and protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com upgrade. That is expressvpn.com upgrade for three months free with a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and all of FM. So, Jason Snell, let's talk about uh, macOS Catalina. Um, the public beta is available now, which is an interesting decision. We'll, we'll dig into that a little bit. But I want to talk about your impressions with Catalina in general and digging to some specific parts of it, because we've actually not really spent a ton of time talking about this version of macOS. Um, right. because it's been I know you've had to spend some time with it right and 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 kind of really kind of dig in and there's a, a lot of things that we can't really know yet and we'll get into that but all right off the bat I wanted to kind of get a feeling from you if, if you're surprised by anything are there any features in Catalina that you're enjoying that maybe you hadn't spent a bunch of time thinking about until you started using them I don't know I mean you write it's only been you know, a few weeks mm -hmm. since we did the uh, we did the initial thing. So uh, I've been I have been thinking about all of those things. But uh, yeah, I I'd say, you know, having screen time available. I'm not surprised by anything much of anything, but like having see seeing this stuff on the Mac and being like, oh, this is a thing that I couldn't do on the Mac up until now. You can probably answer this question for me then. Um, does screen time on the Mac count information from non App Store apps? I don't know. Okay. Because I, you know, screen time was basically useless when I only have like a device on a beta. Right. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. That makes sense. I hope it does. Remember though. last summer, screen time really didn't work until basically the end of the summer when well, they got everything I'll ask on. You, are you using the App Store version of BB Edit or not? I'm not. Right. Well, then it's in your screenshot. So it is counting that. That's good. Oh, there then. you go. So that, that BB Edit was the question. Because when I saw it in your screenshot in your article on Six Colors, I was like, because I expected you were probably not using the App Store version because not. that's what I really wanted. Because for me, if screen time is only picking up App Store apps, it's kind of pointless. Right? Yeah, but why would it do that? Plus, you need parental controls over all apps on the system, not exactly. just App cool. Store apps. I, I agree with you. It would have been silly, but I I didn't want to think one way or the other until I knew. Um, and 
I guess there's like what what are some of the things that you do like the most? They're not necessarily what surprised you, but like has basically worked out being what you wanted. Like I know you were excited about Find My and and photo stuff. Well, you know, Find My works, and I used I use Find My uh, don't like friends the name. on my I'm, I've on tried my Mac. to I accept it, can't stand it. Yeah, it, it is uh, much better than having it in the sidebar. Mm-hmm. That's a cattle or that's a, a catalyst app that actually. Oh, it it's is fine. Okay, it does what it I needed to do, and that's very clever. The biggest feature of it is going to be that uh, device finding a device that's not on a network by spotting it through other Apple devices, which is this very weird feature that requires a lot of security stuff so that it's not an invasion of privacy that Apple yep. has built. This is going to be one of those features that nobody thinks about until they need it, and then they will tell all of their friends about how happy they were that they got their iPhone from the back of that taxi, right? Like, yep. this is going to yep. be one of those things that we don't necessarily feel the effects of for a while, and then there'll be all these stories, right? Or like, you'll hear from a friend of yours, or like someone will say, oh, I lost my laptop. Like, you'll be like, oh, Oh, well, I can tell you how you can find it, right? Like, th- I think it's going to be one of those real feel-good things, but it will take right. a while for people to feel the effects of it. So the iPhone uh, in the taxi is not a great example because it's on a network and, um, you know, right? It's on a network and it's uh, and uh, it knows where it is. Mm-hmm. Um, although uh, I will say that if you get the, uh, you know, it's it's a device that's not on a network is the problem and doesn't know where it mm-hmm. is. Um, and those devices will now be able to send out their little Bluetooth beacon and um, other devices just need to be nearby. And those devices are on the network and know where they are and they see it. And then therefore, you know where your device is. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be lost laptops and iPads That's and stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. I think it, more than more for that. anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what about as the photos guy? You've, I'm sure you, have you actually spent time with your real photos in the new photos app? Oh, yeah, I have. I have. Um, it's... Uh, Again, it's a lot of the details that I have to dive into, and I spent this time, I had to look at everything in Catalina. So I'm impressed with Apple's continued efforts to use machine learning technology to unearth photos in giant photo libraries, because they've clearly decided, and I think they're right, and Google has done the same thing, that everybody's photo libraries are huge, and they're disorganized, not organized, and that's a thing that machine learning is it should be really good at, is recognizing events, recognizing people, recognizing content, and then floating things up to the top. So it's a much more attractive interface, I would say. Uh, these big, you know, big pictures, it's dropping duplicates, it's trying to drop stuff that it doesn't think is relevant. You can show them if you want, but they're dropped by default in the default views. If you look at a year, it's going to show you stuff that happened around this time in every year. So it's sort of anniversaries of things. Um, it will float and autoplay uh, without sound, I believe, video and uh, that you take as well. So that some of them are, it's kind of delightful. And I've got a screenshot in my review about it. Uh, you know, kind of delightful, these uh, little, little, uh, you know, there's like a dance thing that my daughter did and you can see her, you know, dancing in this little square. And they use machine learning to do things like find the faces and the prominent objects in photos and crop appropriately so that it actually like looks good. This preview looks good and it's not just sort of like the weird middle of a photo. So um, I'm encouraged by it, but, you know, again, I need to spend a lot more time with it and see what the downsides of this are. Uh, it is a totally new, yet again, a new photos interface. It's really sort of like the second makeover they've given it in the last few years. Is there anything else that feature-wise that you're that you're excited about before we talk about Catalyst? 
so security is something that I'm actually excited about that Apple keeps, Apple is trying to find a way, and we've talked about this before, Apple's trying to find a way to let the Mac be open while also being secure. And so what it's doing is, it's a few things. It's doing a bunch of sort of like app checking changes that by default are going on, like uh, the gatekeeper that used to check when you launched an app for the first time. Uh, It now checks periodically, not just the first time. Mm. Um, It is looking for a thing called a notarized app. Oh, I remember this last year. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's going to you basically you're supposed to sign your app with Apple um and it, Apple doesn't have a approval there but you sign it and what it, it Apple does a a basic scan of it but basically the cryptographic signature means if that app gets tampered with you remember when like um transmission the BitTorrent client got uh altered so that there was spyware inside it on the download that would be something that would fail if it was signed because the signature check would fail right, if it had been modified after okay. that. Okay. Does this something that allows Apple to can they turn off an app from their side? Yes. It, okay. It means they can turn off an app and not just a developer, which is currently what they do. Right. So they could if there was an, a, an app that got out that was bad, the developer could alert Apple or Apple could could notice it and and kill that app and it would just it would just die and it wouldn't run anymore. So they're doing a bunch of stuff like that and again it's stuff that's happening with the default and you can turn it off. And Apple has said um, in a few places, you know, their intention is not for you to not be able to run a piece of software you want to run, but you may need to turn off security features to do it in the end, Uh, which I'm okay with that, that, uh, that handoff. Um, So there, there are those security features. They separated the system volume into this read only partition that mounts not on your desktop, um, but in the system folder. Uh, system slash system slash volumes. And then there's a hard drive in there. It's weird. Uh, And it's read-only. And the idea there, again, is that weird files don't get inserted into the system stuff because that is a security problem. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. Um, And then... Another thing that I think is interesting is that the, the, some from like a user stability standpoint, there's this snapshot feature now where once you're on Catalina, let's say that they roll out 10.15.1 and it breaks something in your system. <laughs> the way that Apple has got it set up now, you can boot into recovery and you can go back to your snapshot that it took before you ran this the update. Very, it's very Windowsy. It's a great feature, but it reminds me of like because like Windows has had this feature for a long time, right? That like you do something and just bone your system, and then you can go back and fix it again. The reason I love though is because it's funny for me to think because Apple's had this problem, right? Where like they put out a software update, things go wrong. This now allows users to fix those problems on their own side, right? Where you could be like, take me back to before that time, which I think that's good. I think it's a good thing to have. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it is. I What I find most interesting about it is that it suggests that Apple is planning perhaps to use this technology for something more like a time machine. Mm-hmm thing but uh, this is a you know a full-on snapshot that's happening and apfs has that feature so you know it it is it is good to have it but it's a very specific instance where you have a a regret i i I think it would be interesting if you could do this as certainly as a local snapshot feature to have the ability if something bad happened on your system to roll it back to an arbitrary time like think of a time machine for local 
content only, mm-hmm. uh, separate from the time machine that you're doing to an external drive. I, I think where time machine goes from here is a broader discussion because they haven't updated in a while, even though they've put these features in. And, you know, you could assume that a better time machine is coming. But I also wonder sometimes about if Apple is thinking about cloud backup on the Mac, which is a huge amount of data, but at the same time they do it for iOS. I don't know. Um, I want to ask you actually about, she saw you tweet about this, your beta equipment. <laughs> it was very funny to me. Uh, you, like, what did you duct tape uh, SSD to the back of a laptop? Uh, yeah. <laughs> How did that go for you? I, I, I mean, I tweeted about it because it was silly. Basically, I was working at my desk, uh-huh. uh, booting off of the SD onto my iMac Pro, and it was a warm day, and I wanted to go outside. Mm-hmm. And so I took my wife's MacBook Air and shut it down and booted from the external. And after a software update and a turning off security feature, not allowing external boot drives, I had to do a bunch of that stuff. Mm. I, I got it to boot. And then I was like, uh, going to carry it around. And I thought, I'm not carrying this around. It's got the system folder on it. And I'm just going to, I'm going to pop it right out and it's going to, it's going to crash and it's going to be bad. And there are going to be bitter tears and recriminations. And so I thought I got to tape it on and I couldn't find any painter's tape, couldn't find any masking tape, couldn't find any gaffer's tape. Uh, but I had uh, some, some duct tape and I thought, well, at least this will be funny. And it was, so. It was very funny. <laughs> Sorry, good. It was just for during the day. Yep. And by the time Lauren got back from work, I had already untaped it and uh, wiped off all of the, the sticky stuff. And it was as if it had never it happened. happened. Um, before we talk about Catalyst, I want to talk about the music app. Because I think, in contrary to a lot of the things that I have seen... You seem to be very unhappy with the music app, where most people that I've spoken to about it say that it is great. And I want to get into that a little bit because uh, there was always this question. We asked it, it uh, Marco asked it on ATP as well, of like talking about the breakup of iTunes. Could it be one of those situations where you don't know what you got till it's gone? And yep. you seem to be pretty upset with the music app, right? Well, so the music app is iTunes, but they have definitely redesigned the music and the Apple TV app to look like more like iOS apps. And and I think, uh, so the podcast app is a Catalyst app, but what they've done is they tried to unify the design and they have taken design hints from iOS. So this is one of those cases where it's a, you know, so much fear was uh, focused on the fact that Catalyst apps were going to come to the Mac and not be Mac-like. And not enough fear was maybe focused on what if Apple just decides that even apps that have been on the Mac for more than a decade should look more like their iOS counterparts, regardless of the origin of them. And that's really what happened with uh, with iTunes when they turned it into the music and the TV app is that they ripped some features out that I use every day, which is a bummer. And they make some, made some uh, interface decisions that... I think makes sense on iOS and don't make sense on the Mac. So I'm not impressed with it. I mean, it's fine. It still plays my music library. It still plays my Apple Music stuff, which is not surprising. You know, it, it's it still does most of what it did before. But, you know, I had a... I use Column View, which used to be the default on iTunes back in the day, so that I could very quickly jump to an artist and then filter through their albums and maybe pick a couple albums and shuffle through them. And that you just can't do that without column view. Um, and uh, the music app 
like the music app on iOS doesn't have this concept. So they 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 made the column view disappear completely. It was already hidden by default, but you could make it visible and now it's just gone. And that was a major way that I listened to music from my library, you know, in terms of picking out an album or a couple albums to listen to. They have an album view, although it's funny by default you search the album view by finding an artist, not an album. That's not that's kind of that's silly, isn't it? And then you have to scroll through all the albums to find the album you want. Uh, and then oh you can boy, play I remember Column album. View. I was like, I couldn't visualize it, but now I found it's it. It's the like genres, artists, albums at the top of the window, and yeah. then you can click them to filter, which I, I admit is a kind of an old view, but I used it all the time. I listen on my Mac to iTunes music every day, and I use the Column View all the time when I want to listen to exactly what I want to. And the problem is like, you can kind of approximate this by going in the album view and going to an artist and then picking the albums you want to listen to and then add them to up next. But up next has weird rules where like a shuffle happens within the thing that you are playing now and you add things to it. And depending on how you add things to it, they don't get shuffled. They just get pushed off to later. So there's a lot of weird things where it takes more steps and it doesn't quite do what I actually want it to do. So I don't know. It's just it's just one of those things that I'm not surprised they took it away, but it's a feature that I used and this makes this app less functional. They're basically trying to make it more like the iOS app by removing features. Um, the one that from a kind of John Gruber-like uh, I'm watching the usability of my operating system standpoint that, uh, that I object to is where they put lyrics and up next, which is in this slide out thing, just like it is on the iPad. Um, you know, you tap a, the lyrics button and the lyrics slide out into the window, covering the content of the window, which is completely logical when you're using a single window interface like an iPad. But on the Mac, it's sort of like, why did you do that? Why, why have you covered up my content with Can your you list? Make I have an enormous... larger. To... Yes, and then it still slides in. Oh, that's that that that. that it doesn't slide out. It's like a drawer that only slides in because on an iPad, where would it go if it slid out? It's like a question of like what's outside the universe. It's not possible. What happened before time? How much time was there? There wasn't time, right? It's a big picture question. How do you if you've got a full screen iPad app and then a drawer slides uh-huh. out? Where does, where does it, it go? Come from? Yeah, it can't. It, there's nothing out there. But on the Mac, it's a window. It's floating in space. You could just stick that content out there or what they did in iTunes is they had a little popover um, and you could dismiss it and all that. It's, it's not a huge thing, but I looked at it and I was like, this is an iOS design decision that's being brought to the Mac. And I'm not sure I like it uh, just because the context of the Mac does not require that kind of a compromise, but yeah, there it is. One of the things that I find interesting about these decisions is this is a Mac app. Like that's what I find so interesting about it is like, I get it if the, a Catalyst app does this. There's a logic to it. They want them to be consistent. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And this is the truth is, it doesn't matter how it's built. It doesn't matter how it's built. It matters what they want it to look like and how they want mm-hmm. it to behave. And Apple is saying, we want, we were all like, oh, they're, they're, it turns out it is iTunes. We're saved. They didn't bring over the music app from iOS. And the answer is no, 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 no. They remade iTunes to look like the music app from iOS. It may not be, but we're going to make design decisions that are iOS design decisions on the Mac, and that's just how it's going to be. And I I do think that this is Apple saying, essentially, um, we think we're going to redefine what a Mac app is like, and the answer is it's like an iPad app. 
I mean, like that was everybody's, you know, not everybody, but that was a fear was that the Mac was going to inherit kind of like design decisions that were made in a different context. And this is a good example of exactly that happening, even though it's a quote unquote, you know, original Mac app. All right. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by AstroPad Studio. AstroPad Studio turns your iPad into a completely customizable graphics tablet so you can combine the power of your Apple Pencil with your favorite Mac apps right on your iPad. The makers behind AstroPad understand that no two artists work alike, which is why they have packed AstroPad with full, full of opportunities to customize every aspect of your workflow with programmable gestures, custom pressure curves, and unlimited per-app shortcuts. They literally designed AstroPad from the ground up for professional artists. They guarantee low latency performance over Wi-Fi or with a USB cable so you can set up your workspace on the go as well. It is a high performance tool for the most demanding creative work and it is used by major animation studios and production design firms across the globe. So if you're ready to take your creative workflow to the next level, you can start your free 30-day trial of AstroPad Studio today by going to astropad.com to get started. That is astropad.com. Right now. Go there right now and check it out. Our thanks to AstroPad Studio for their support of Upgrade and all of Relay FM. So let's talk about Catalyst. Um, there, so C- Catalyst, uh, previously Project Sneak Peek, previously Marzipan. This is the project in Catalina of allowing for uh, iPad apps or apps that were developed with the iPad in mind to run on the Mac. So there are some examples from Apple. There are new ones and there are old ones. Has anything happened to the old apps? So this was news, stocks, home, and voice memos. Yes. Has anything happened? Well, it doesn't look like it, but my understanding is that behind the scenes, Apple is trying to take them, and I'm unclear on whether this is in the current betas or if it's... If it's uh, happening this summer but uh what happened with those apps last time is they're basically hand built for this thing that didn't have a name and that this year they're supposed to be brought up on the general um catalyst framework so you know in theory this is all like these have now been built using the current tools instead of the kind of hacks that they had to do last time so they are using they've been updated in the sense that they apparently are using the modern catalyst system to build them now instead of whatever they had to do to get them to run last year however when you look at them they don't look any different and in fact in some places they've regressed like there was an open safari item uh i was on the i was will be on the talk show with john gruber uh we recorded it late last week it's not out yet as we record this but probably soon so if you want to hear another two and a half hours of me talking Watch for that. But John pointed out that uh, there's a file menu item called Open in Safari that got added to the news app. And in Catalina Beta, it's gone. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's like uh, weird. Did they go back to an older version of the code? And then are they going to push it forward? It's kind of unclear. The one I go to immediately is the automations tab in a home app to look and see if the date picker has changed from the little spinny thing that is from iOS. And at least as of this beta, the answer is no, which... I, I don't know. It, it's it, it's frustrating to me that Apple has apparently just slept on these apps and that like that 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 spinning wheel for day picker or and time picker. It's it's really bad. Like find it was very clear a year ago it was really bad. Find an alternative 
to make it a better Mac app. And they apparently, at least as of now, have not done that. So we'll see. You know, again, I can say just like I did last year, I hope they fix this by the end of the summer, but we're here a year later and they haven't done it. So it's it's unfortunate that there was a time when we expected that the Apple apps on the platform would be the exemplars of the platform. And uh, I don't think they are. I, I, you know, my gut feeling is that these, these old ones anyway, are, are just kind of weird and not very good. Um, The new ones are better and show a lot of potential to be better, but I'm disappointed that Apple hasn't gone back and brushed up the old ones because like news, for example, and home, and I'm sure all of them could use a little bit of love to make them a little more Mac appropriate than they are. Before we move away completely from talking about the older apps, the uh, sneak peek apps, there was a CNET report claiming that Craig Federighi had told them that the older apps would be improved. And they used some quotes of things that I have heard Craig Federighi mention in other places, like in his interview of Federico on App Stories and in the... Um, the episode of the talk show where they were kind of talking about, and I'll read this quote actually, that we've looked at the design and features of some of those apps, the older apps, and said, we can make this a bit more of a Mac experience through changes that are independent of the use of catalysts, but are just design team decisions. And he kind of would say that like, oh, you know, it wasn't the underlying frameworks of why they work that way or why they maybe seem weird, but they were design decisions. But then the CNET uh, article also has a quote saying, well, they, they, they have a quote saying, wait for the public beta, we're still tuning everything up, that's where it gets really good. Now, from your perspective, you've been using the public beta and you're still unhappy, but have seen changes. Well, I'll be clear, I'm using beta too, okay. but that's my understanding is that's the public beta. Okay, so that, that's <laughs> so, what you've been told though, right? Like, Yeah, that's okay. what I've been told. And, and I also can say my impression is that CNET maybe took these statements that were also largely what Craig said on stage to John Gruber and interpreted them more than is there. Yep. Is my understanding. Is that, yes. is that this is really, this is really, <laughs> is it better? Is it worse? It does feel a little bit like Craig Federighi is kind of throwing the design team under the bus. I was a little saying, uncomfortable with the way that he was talking about that. Yeah, cause he's kind of saying, hey, those things, because he's bragging on Catalyst and on his engineers for Catalyst and saying, you know, those things that you point to in those apps and say they're not Mac-like, those aren't faults with Catalyst. Those are just terrible design decisions. Yeah, it kind of felt a little bit okay. like he was bringing an internal debate out into public, right? Which was yeah. super weird because like, all right, let's just imagine that it is nothing to do with the underlying framework, but was just design decisions all right, but like, find a different way to say that to everybody else. Like, it was very strange. It was very, very strange to hear. But it is just interesting that like, they didn't, there is a line coming from someone inside of Apple, which is saying that like, oh, this stuff can be changed. But as far as we're aware so far, it hasn't been. And then there was also stuff. So Steve Trout Smith has found examples um, and has been tweeting about these of both messages and shortcuts having Catalyst versions, and he has found this stuff in the beta of Catalina. So the current beta, the developer beta that's available, uh, Steve has found evidence and has been able to get something to run on his local system, which is messages written with the Catalyst framework. This seems very weird, right? Like, why is this in there to a point where it can be launched but is not something that Apple seems to be shipping 
or have spoken about yet. The frameworks are in there because the frameworks are in there to be referenced by Catalyst, but that doesn't necessarily mean they may be needed in other places or it may be that they were intending on building those apps, but they aren't ready to build them yet. But the pieces are in there. It's unclear. I would be surprised if if Shortcuts gets added as an app midstream in the Catalina beta, partially because Shortcuts is super confusing if it can only access certain apps, mm-hmm. right? Like, but messages weird. is a bigger one, though, right? Messages is, but my understanding is what they're doing is they're embedding parts of messages uh, via Catalyst in the Messages app. The Messages app is a hybrid app, basically, where there are some new things in it that are coming from Catalyst, plus they're keeping the existing code base. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think I think it's interesting that they're doing that, but I think that that is more just a curiosity, and that what they told us is what they intend to ship. So all this other stuff is a sign that this is stuff that's maybe floating around, but is not intended to ship. That's that's what it looks like for me. But I I will I guess I'll kind of I want to get your view on it. Do you think that Apple is going to ship a lot of Catalyst apps, or are they now maybe putting their focus on SwiftUI instead? Uh, you know, Catalyst is a vitally important bridging technology for Apple because it allows their entire base of iOS developers to reach macOS and allows macOS to get an influx of uh, stuff from iOS. It means that all those developers who've built up the skill of developing on iOS, developing iOS apps over the years can now write software for the, the Macs that they use every day to write that software. I think it's going to be... Uh, I think it's going to be really good for that. I think that there's going to be iOS code around for a long time. This, you know, UI kit code around for a very long time that people have been building for the app for uh, for iOS and the iOS App Store. Um, Swift UI and Swift in general is the future. Like this is where, as you know, we heard Josh and Wiley talk about uh, what last week. Um, there are two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, this is the future. This is Apple thinks that this is like how apps are going to be built uh, going forward for you know decade plus. Um, but Catalyst has to be good enough to be parked somewhere, and I'm not sure it is yet. We'll see how this fall goes. But like Catalyst is important because Apple wants people to be able to use their UI kit code across their platforms, and then starting now, start building things that they can use Swift UI to build. Mm-hmm. But if Catalyst doesn't work right, it's not one of these things where it's like, well, we'll abandon Catalyst and go to Swift UI because the whole point is that the 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 UI kit stuff should be portable and come along with for compatibility reasons. So, what's the priority? Who knows how Apple prioritizes things? I would think that they're both important right now, but that one of them will become less important over time, and the other will become more important over time. And, you know, SwiftUI will be more important over time. But Catalyst, you know, I think Catalyst has more work to be done because they need to be able to make that stuff, unless it's unless it's complete. Uh, it's, it's too important to be able to get that stuff to work everywhere. But it's also just a, it's important to view it at this point as a transitional thing. It's meant to provide that compatibility. So what about the new apps then? So podcasts, you kind of already mentioned Find My, but do they feel better than the old apps in a significant way? They do. They're better. I think, again, I'm not sure that these are the platform exemplars. I I would be, um, I wonder if we're going to see, you know, 
I'd almost bet that we'll see better Mac apps from third parties yeah, than I, from I Apple. I feel like it is a little bit... Not unfair is not the right word, but we are not getting the full picture of what this technology will enable because Apple isn't shipping a lot of their own apps. But I, I get kind of I'm getting more of the feeling that it's not really for them; it's for third parties to do it, right? And there is a problem in talking about Catalyst now because we haven't seen the other shoe has not dropped, and it's a big shoe, right? Like. Well, this is why it's important for Apple to build apps that are platform exemplars, right? No, I agree with that. Like, I and 100% they... agree with that, but they haven't, really. Haven't. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But that so doesn't that, mean it can't thing. be done. They right. just haven't done it. I, I want to put in the show notes as well a, a great article that John Voorhees wrote, uh, Mac Stories Today, uh, kind of trying to... Because there seems to be, like, a lot of the general discussion about Catalyst now is negative. Like, the conversation we are having, uh, have had up to this point in the episode, is talking about the bad stuff. But there is a lot of promise. But it's just difficult to see it because you can't see it now, right? Because we don't have the apps. Right. All we have is is basically the stuff that Steve Jotton Smith keeps retweeting from people who are saying, here, I'm working on this thing and mm-hmm. here's what it looks like now. And we'll have to be the judge of that in the end. But it is, um, I think there's a lot of potential there. But in the end, does it come off? It, I don't think we can judge it as a success or a failure yet based on all this. You know, like the um, the podcast app is fine. Like it's it's great and i i realize that that is sort of damning with faint praise but like after mojave it's praise like the podcast app's a real app and it works it's got bugs but i fully expect those bugs to be fixed they are funny bugs like you click on a list and then you click on another item in the list they just all select the the each item you click on selects it doesn't like move your selection you can't do things like if you select multiple items and you hit delete or command delete it doesn't do anything you have to delete things by clicking on a little a uh, little circle and choosing delete item one at a time, which again is an iOS interface thing. That one, they better fix that. But that's a problem that's not just limited to the podcast app. There are other apps um, that are like that too. Um, in fact, the podcast app, I think, lets you uh, lets you control click or right click on an item and you get that same contextual menu that's in the little disc with the three dots. Uh, whereas the photos app... I believe only has the little three dot thing, and if you if you control click or right click, it does nothing, which is very not Mac like. Mm-hmm. Although I have to ask, what's Apple's plan here? Is Apple's plan here that alternate clicks? Because I could see both arguments. One argument is on Macs you have this alternate clicking interface that you don't have on iOS. So on iOS you have to make all the menus of alternate things visible or and tappable otherwise right. you can't ever discover them. You could argue that it's also bad to discover them on the Mac. So maybe maybe they should do that, but right now it seems really kind of confusing and inconsistent and I'm not sure Apple knows mm-hmm. what the what they want this to be. Like if the if the truth is contextual menus by via control click are just too hard Apple judges for regular people to understand, then that little lozenge that provides a contextual menu should start showing up everywhere. Um, but I, I don't know that it, it's not everywhere and you're still control clicking in some places, but not in other places. And it's just, it's, it's, it's not surprising since we're going through this transition uh, because I think Apple is still figuring out where they want to take it and they're not being as consistent as they should be yet. 
because yeah, iPadOS is getting a lot more contextually type menus with uh, popovers, right? Like there's a... Where you're tapping and holding, yeah. right? Which is similar to what you could say with a click and hold or a, or a two-finger click on a trackpad on the Mac. So what does that mean in terms of how Apple views discoverability of things that are basically invisible until you do a special gesture? I don't know. I, I'm not seeing a lot of consistency, I guess is what I'm saying. But but um, to wind it back, the podcast app is 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 fine. And it's functionality that um, is fairly complex and that wasn't on the Mac before because the iTunes version of podcasts was really the thing they built in 2005. And it is not good. And the, the new podcast app is better. And Find My is a perfectly nice app. But you still have, you know... I, again, these are simple apps too, and it's funny that Apple doesn't seem to have uh, succeeded. Maybe they attempted. They don't seem to have succeeded in rolling out a complex system app that uses Catalyst. Um, it is worth noting that as of right now, I'm recording uh, the public betas of iOS 13 and iPad OS have also been released. Um, but Jason had pre-knowledge of mac os right um yes so that's I, how I we was... were able to spend so much time talking about it today exactly i assume uh i assume that they would probably drop them all at once although it does seem awfully early for these versions to be there but uh, here we are we're on uh, public beta day so uh, talking about public, public betas actually in general, they're a better thing to install than developer betas and a lot of people will, will put the ipad stuff on because they're excited about it should anybody be installing the Catalina public beta? Like, why would you want to do this? I think not. Yep. <laughs> I think you need to be a developer who, like, if you want to build a Catalyst app, you need to be basically running it in Catalina. I think if you're somebody like me who's writing about it, you need to be there. Even I am not in there with my primary system. I'm in there with an external. If you want to play around, that's a good way to do it is create a partition or put it on an external drive, but it's beta software. It's buggy. It's weird. It's, you know, it's, it's okay. It didn't destroy anything, but it's also beta software and it's weird. And I would wait and let it shake out if you can possibly wait. The nice thing about the Mac is that you can put it on an external uh, and boot into it, which obviously on an iOS device, you're, you're, you're stuck once you're there Mm -hmm. more or less. So I think it's more likely you could do it. You want to play around with the new stuff and then reboot into your safe, comfortable home in uh, Mojave. Oh, I should also mention, I speaking of installing, being why it's a bad idea to install betas on your iOS devices. <laughs> I did that. Um, this is this is actually kind of follow out to Connected last week, which mm-hmm. you weren't on, Mm-mm. but uh, David Sparks filled in for you and David and Federico spent a lot of time talking about iOS while Stephen did, I don't know, accounting in the background. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, what I wanted to say about it is that Federico talked about the the iOS beta and said, "Well, I installed it, he and has it's to, pretty it's right, pretty good on my review. iPad. Yeah. On the iPhone, it's bad, but it's pretty good on my iPad. But I but he has to, right? And then he, and then and I'm like, oh, this sounds pretty good. Maybe I should do it. And then he said, but you shouldn't do it. He says to the listeners, you shouldn't do it because it's a beta and it's uh, unstable and it has weird things in it." And you shouldn't do it. He has and had some myself, horrific iCloud problems. Yeah. yeah. So I thought to myself, okay, all right, Federico, you're right. You're right. I won't, I won't install it. And then he said, unless you're writing about this for a living, <laughs> in which case you should install it. And I went, 
oh, okay, all right, Federico, yes, yes, I will install it. And then I came home and I installed it on my main iPad. So my main iPad is now running the iOS 13 beta. Mm. Um, it's the only Syst primary device that I have that I'm I'm putting on there. But um, Federico's right. Like I'm going to write about it, and I'm not going to I'm not going to do it on my phone because I just don't see the need to do that. But mm-hmm. on my iPad, I it, I think it's been worth it because once you're on the thing that you actually live with, you learn a lot more. And I learned a lot more in the first 24 hours than I had in the previous two weeks because I was actually living with it. That said, Face ID is unreliable. Uh, the shortcuts widget doesn't work right. Uh, like, I mean, there's all sorts of things that don't work right <laughs> because it's a beta. Of course they don't work right. I'm not holding anybody responsible except myself, but it is one of those things that uh, now I'm in the position to say what Federico said, which is unless this is your job uh, to write software for this or to write about this, don't do it. It's just not, don't do it yet. It'll be there. It'll be much better later this summer. I really want to do it though. I haven't done it. I haven't got the bait. I haven't got any betas on anything. It's your job to talk about it, Mike. You can totally do it if you want to. Yeah, I just don't you've know got where also to put you've it. got multiple iPads. You've got multiple iPads, so you could pick a, sad, a, a sacrificial iPad. I just haven't and, been able uh, to decide which one. I want yeah. to sacrifice. That's, hard. That's a real Sophie's choice there for you. Because I have the one that I use the most, or I have the one that I use when I travel, and neither of those feels like the right one to do it on, right? Because you don't, you don't want to have problems when you're traveling. Because as True. N- if you have something catastrophic, it's difficult to fix it. But then if it's bad, I'm going to be putting it on the one that I use every day. So I, I just haven't been able to decide. Um, I was think I was kind of waiting for beta three for developer beta three, um, and I do tend to prefer the developer beta to the public beta myself because the developer beta tends to have more fixes in it, but it's also probably more unstable. Um, but as of right now, I mean, we don't know what what the public beta is. We're, I guess you'd assume it's beta two, right? Developer beta two. So I think so. I mean, they they had me review straight from the developer second developer beta. They didn't have me download something to else. So my guess is that it's either that build or it's close to that build. Mm-hmm. But it seems it just seems premature. I, I honestly, I'm surprised. When they said July, I really thought that they were going to take it uh, take it a little bit slower with the public betas and here we are uh june 24th it and is here weird they are, so. like why did they do this like why is it today they said july why have they done it on june 24th it's very peculiar to me like isn't it what was the harm in waiting another week was there a harm probably not that i don't know what the benefit is in them doing it at least a week earlier than they said they would that just seems very peculiar to me it's a you know, we talk about things that are on Apple-like. Apple delivering something before they said they would. I mean, I expected the developer beta would come out on, like, July 29th, right? Because they said July, so they've given themselves right. the entire month. I assumed it would be early in July, but that they were going to push it off a little bit, and they were going to give themselves some breathing room. And then it turns out they didn't give themselves any... It's like It's like the kind of promise you make to yourself where you're like oh this time mm-hmm. i'm not going to eat that ice cream i'm going to leave it there i'm only going to eat half that ice cream and then you, you eat the ice cream right it's like yeah. the policy decision and then there's the it's like a new year's resolution oh no 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 we're gonna wait we're gonna wait this year we're gonna be patient this year and then they're not patient that seems to be what happened the answer the, the thing that shishara said in the chat i hope is the reason is that the, the earlier they release it the more time they had to fix things that is the logical thing Right. I, my guess is that they structured this that they did a they did a build back in probably May that was the developer conference build and that their next targeted build was a public beta candidate 
And they've been running that public beta candidate internally, and it looked pretty good. Remember, at WWDC, we heard from a bunch of people who said, oh, this beta is a, a, is a, a disaster. Wait for the next one. The next one is good. So they, even at WWDC, I think people were using a beta that they felt was in much better shape. That might be these betas. And then they rolled them out to developers last week, and it seems to have gone well. So that's my guess, is that they they gave themselves enough time that if beta 2 was unstable they could not release it as a public beta and just do another cycle and get to a better place and that this beta turned out to be so stable that there was no reason not to put it out that's going to be my that's my uh inside baseball theory about what happened is that they were giving themselves time to fix an unstable beta and it turns out that this one is actually pretty good so the next one will be a disaster now mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows who knows all right, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at ButcherBox, who are the folk who deliver thoughtfully sourced meat directly to your door. And right now, they are offering free bacon for life. So stick around to hear more about that. ButcherBox makes it easy to get high-quality meat that you can trust. Every single month, ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage-breed pork, and wild Alaskan salmon to your door. Uh, you can pick what you want. It's wonderful. It's slamming salmon, Mike. Slamming salmon. salmon. As that, that's not what they call it, but that's what we're going to call it. Each butcher box comes with at least 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. You can choose from five different box types, including a custom box, where you can choose exactly how much you need of each type of meat. Butcher box meat comes from humanely raised open pasture animals. They are never fed antibiotics, hormones, or fatty fillers. So you can cook with the peace of mind knowing that you're feeding your family high quality healthy meat and because butcher box purchases from a collect of a collected of ranches they are able to cut out the grocery store middle person and pass their savings directly to you jason can you tell me about how good butcher box's meat has been it's great we use it all the time um we have a, a box that comes to the house it's hard frozen i've heard people say in the summer they're worried that it's going to melt it's got dry ice in there it comes it is frozen solid as a rock put it in your freezer and then it's so convenient because um, although we do have a, a meal box that we also get during the week that's the fresh stuff and all of that the fact is the freedom we have with the frozen meat to say you know like a little library it's like do we want steak tonight do we want some chicken like chicken thighs chicken wings they're all in there um, i have a little sous vide machine which actually makes thawing them uh super easy that's a pro tip set it to the lowest setting lowest temperature so it's just circulating the water and that thing will thaw meat super fast and then, uh, you know, it's easy. Grill it, sous vide it, whatever. Um, so it, it really has made our um, our meal planning a lot easier to know that we've got that butcher box meat in the in the fridge uh, or in the freezer. And it's really good too. the chicken thighs uh, and the steaks and all of it. It's good stuff. To receive $20 off your first box and a package of free bacon in every box for the life of your subscription. I love ButcherBox's offers. Go to ButcherBox.com slash upgrade or enter the code upgrade at checkout. That is a limited time offer. So go to ButcherBox.com slash upgrade or enter the promo code upgrade to get $20 off your first box and a package of free bacon in every box for the life of your subscription. Our thanks to ButcherBox for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. And it is time for some hashtag 
Ask Upgrade questions. Don't forget, <laughs> it is the summer of fun, so today's episode is going to feature a Mike at the Movies segment of Kiki's Delivery Service, which we'll be talking about after we finish hashtag Ask Upgrade today. Our first question today comes from Thea, and Thea wants to know, I have to produce a short-run podcast for an organization I volunteer with. I can edit with a 10.5-inch iPad Pro or an iMac. Is Ferrite my best software option for ease of learning and cost? I won't. It won't be an income earner, so I'm shying away from buying something like Logic. Jason, as somebody who is well more versed in uh, the variety of editing programs than I am, uh, I would love to know what you think about this. Ferrite is the best deal in podcast editing tools. What about GarageBand? GarageBand is fine if you want to be on on the Mac. I don't like it for podcast editing on on either platform, honestly, but it's better on the Mac than it is on iOS for podcast editing. It's free. It's got that going for it, but um, you kind of have to fight it. It wants to do do music, so it wants to put like echoes on your voices and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you have to you have to fight it more. Um, if you are open to the idea of editing podcasts on an iPad, especially like the twelve point nine inch iPad Pro, uh, and if you've got especially if you've got a pencil, but even if you don't, you've got a Bluetooth keyboard. Like I, I have edited many podcasts on Ferrite using nothing but my hands, right? Not using a keyboard, not using the pencil. I think it's, uh, I think it is the best value in uh, podcast editing software. Again, yes, GarageBand is free, but Ferrite will not get in your way like GarageBand does. So if you're willing to spend time working on an iPad, I think it's the right choice. And it, it is, you can try it out. I think it's free to try. And then there are features that you can buy. So you can also give it a try and see Perfect. what you, what you like and what you don't. And, and again, all in, I think it's like 20 or 25 bucks. It's, it's, it's nothing. Cause logic is hundreds of dollars. Um, I will also recommend to Thea to listen to episode 200 of upgrade, uh, where we just talk about how we produce podcasts. Let me talk about return on investment for a podcast episode. That one has oh, been yeah. great for me because anytime anybody, because I get this question a lot, as I'm sure you you do, like I have this question about how to make a show or this question or this question. I just send people that URL. It's in the URL that I can easily remember because it was episode 200. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I just send it to people all the time. And I'm very happy that I have a resource that I can point people to of like, th- we spoke for nearly two hours about how we make shows. Go crazy. So Yeah. Yeah. That, that- oh, also... Um- Speaking of ferrite, I will say there was a nice thread from Candice at Wooji Juice that makes ferrite mm-hmm. um, that uh, about when we can expect ferrite on the Mac. And the answer is don't hold your breath because he wants to do it right. And he wants to do a lot of he needs to do a lot of iOS 13 updates first. And and it's a good it is the most inspiring, disappointing Twitter thread I've seen in a long time <laughs> in the sense that I really want it now. Right. But what I like about the thread and why I find it inspirational is he's got his priorities in order. He's like, I got to do this thing where they're changing stuff in iOS 13, and that's got to be my top priority. I want to make sure that the iOS version is solid. And then come, you know, come the fall, maybe I'll, I'll work on the, the Mac version as well um, and make sure that that is also done appropriately. It's a, it's a really nice uh, sort of just work in progress Twitter thread that he, that he posted. And uh, I'm excited with the idea of Ferrite being on my Mac because uh, although I am great at using Logic and I like Logic, uh, I like the idea of being able to move my projects back and forth between my Mac and my iPad. And I can't do that right now. I have to commit to one or the other. 
Bartek asks, uh, recent Dropbox changes have made the product overly complex for what I need, which is a simple storage and sync solution for my large library of documents. I found iCloud Drive to be buggy and not quite suited for straight syncing in the past. Do you think that I'll be able to replace Dropbox when iOS 13 comes out? Uh, I didn't even mention, but there's the new folder folder sharing thing mm -hmm. <laughs> in iCloud Drive, which is a big feature for some people where that was like one thing that was really keeping them on Dropbox. Dropbox... Yeah, I don't love the idea of the Dropbox. I understand it, but Dropbox has gotten its business model is is appealing to enterprise, to giant enterprise clients. And so they're like, we've put Google Docs and you know all this Slack. other stuff inside Dropbox and Slack, right? And we're running it, it's a it's the app has like all this stuff in it that is beyond what I want as somebody who uses it for collaboration, but I don't use it for Slack and I don't use it for for uh, for Google Docs. So, um my my hope is that Dropbox will be judicious with what it does and that, that if you're just using it on this other level that it won't ruin that product. But it might because it's clearly not the focus. I'm very hesitant to the idea that just because a company adds something that they're changing everything that you use. Like, right. I think a, a lot of the current freaking out about Dropbox is maybe a little bit more than is necessary, but like the product at its core is still the same. Yeah, the signs are there that their priorities have have shifted kind of away from this this audience that includes people like us to the enterprise. Um, and that could be a bad sign or it could be nothing. And people do freak out about Dropbox. There are a lot of people who freak out about Dropbox because of the kernel extensions it uses in order to patch the file system so that it, it can behave the way it wants to. By the way, there's a whole new system to do that in macOS Catalina that ideally will solve a lot of these problems by allowing Google, Do Google Drive and Dropbox and uh, 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 OneDrive to write to that new file system API in uh, macOS Catalina. And it may even be related to the one in iOS 13, which is pretty cool. I'm not sure about that. But um, so, so it may be the Dropbox and all these other file providers get better in Catalina because they will be updated to use this new system that's a better system. That would be cool. Um, but, you know, this question is about I, iCloud Drive. iCloud Drive is fine. It's got some bugs, um, although I haven't been bothered by them in a while. So it feels Every like maybe day. it's getting better. Oh, my you, God. You still have them? Yeah. I am a I feel like I'm of a, a increasingly smaller group of people. But I have so many problems with files on my iPad where like oh, yeah, I am sure. trying to sure. use like I'm trying to use numbers and it just spins on like a sixty oh, yeah. K numbers file. Same. Same. That okay. that absolutely happens to me too. Yes. Oh yeah. I was I was thinking of it in a Mac context, but this question is also about iOS and mm -hmm. yeah, in iOS right now, um I I have lots of problems with, with I with iCloud Drive where files that are very small just never come over mm -hmm. and you're stuck and you have no feedback. Also, I have problems with Dropbox and iOS 13 where um, they get out of sync, where the files app doesn't really know what's in Dropbox and you have to go to the Dropbox app, which negates the point of having Dropbox show up in the files app. Again, again yeah. some hope with iOS 13 that Dropbox on iOS may be better. My guess is that Dropbox on iOS is not going to get as ruined as Dropbox on the Mac, potentially by all of these business changes they're making. But I, I agree with you. Apple's got to clean up the iCloud Drive experience on iOS because um, in files right now, it can be a disaster. So basically, uh, the answer to the question, Bartek, is it's too early to tell. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe. 
Maybe, but you may not need to. It's really very much like you may not need to because Dropbox might be okay. You may not be able to because the buggy stuff that's in iCloud on in, in the Files app may still be there. I wish I had an answer. We are watching these betas too. This is the funniest thing about the summer with betas is you've got all your little pet bugs that drive you crazy and you get these versions of it and you're like, did they fix it? And you don't know. It's a crapshoot. You have no idea whether this little bug was fixed eight months ago or whether they are not even aware that it exists. <laughs> I don't know. I like the idea of pet bugs that drive you crazy. Yeah. That's that's fun for me because it's like a little pet bug. And it's like, oh, you're driving me crazy. This could be a, pl- little, plot of a plot of a Totoro movie. Uh, on the last episode in our app draft, um, I mentioned Threes as an app that got put onto the home screen because I, I, I still play it all the time. And Forgo wants to know, what is my high score? For somebody who plays the game a lot, actually my high score is not massive compared to some of the scores that I've seen. It's 63,657. That is my highest score in threes. I uh, beat your high score in uh, single flip-flop suit solitaire. in flip-flop. You did? Yeah, yeah you, sent me a, you sent me a screenshot of that. <laughs> I did. I marked it up. <laughs> yep, you circled sure it. Circled Appreciate where it. you were, circled where I uh-huh. was, did a little arrow. Thanks. Yeah. Much appreciated. Kevin wants to know, what are the chances that Apple gets back into the router game? Uh, referencing HomeKit for routers. An opportunity, I know I said that differently both times, but that's just my Router. life. Referencing HomeKit routers. for routers, an opportunity to grow services revenue via subscriptions similar to Eero and additional privacy controls. So this was shown off on stage at WBC, and as one of the things that's getting added to HomeKit is support for routers. And they showed a bunch of products, including Eero as one that's going to be added into this system. My feeling on this is the fact that they have added this support into HomeKit is more of a reason that Apple will not be getting back into the right. router game because they are blessing a bunch of companies uh, with, from a security standpoint, basically. Feel, feels that way to me. Feels that way to me that this is a Apple is going to build, is going to work with router developers on features rather than build their own thing. Because this by by drawing that like cause and effect apple would then make light bulbs which they're not going to do i would love apple to see networking hardware and vpn as a business opportunity to expand their privacy and security brand but my guess based on reading the tea leaves is that they've decided it's a can of worms they don't want to open and that they're better off working with VPN providers and router providers and just not getting, not setting foot in that area. Um, Because while it would be a good fit for them to VPN everything and uh, have the most stable and secure router for your home and all of those things, I think maybe this is a, a case where they they survey the landscape and are like that's kind of a lot for us to take on we don't need to there's plenty of options out there we're fine personally i'm happier with them providing tools like HomeKit than building their own hardware so then i can still choose what i want yeah but still benefit from the security stuff like that i i find that to be a better trade-off for, for what i want to do uh, Dimitar says, you keep mentioning how you like to use, uh, or how you want to have widgets on your iPad visible all the time, but I really want to know what widgets do you use? And that is a good question because I, I know I've been saying it a lot, like I'm really excited to have widgets on my home, on my home screen. So I should, we should mention the widgets that I use every single day. So I use the shortcuts widget. Um, I use the widget for Timery, Fantastic Owl, and Calzones and Todoist. I use those widgets every single day and the batteries widget as well. And I use them all yep. the time. So um, they're, they're the ones for me. Uh, shortcuts for sure. Uh, Fantastic Owl. Um, those are the biggest ones. Carrot Weather. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but shortcuts is the big one because not only is that um, I use shortcuts, but you can run them from the widget. It and is they run the without the user way. interface. It, the it fastest the best way, way to, look, to, to run a bunch of shortcuts is with the widget. That is a pro tip. Yeah. Um, Andrew asks, what case or cover do you use with your iPads when you're not using the bridge keyboard? I don't use anything. Because if it's not in the bridge keyboard, it's only ever out of it for a little while. And I'll either have it in my stand, the clear look stand that I use, clear look of a K, um, or I don't use any case at all. I use, I'm finding myself using the Apple Smart Cover Folio, whatever they call it, the one without the, the, one keyboard. Without the keyboard. Yeah. A lot. Because it's super thin and light and. I use that a lot, and then I'll put it in a, a keyboard case or a stand if I want. But I, I, I've sort of fallen back to just give me a little thing that covers it. Yeah, yeah. I, I use it not in the bridge keyboard so infrequently, right? That I don't feel like I need to have a case on it, and I actually then just enjoy having the super thin and light iPad in my hands in those times. Um, so I, I just haven't used the case at all in those circumstances. Um, I did want to mention, they did send me a press release for this, but I'll just mention it. They didn't ask me to, but I will. The The bridge keyboards are in stock now because like I know before they were doing pre-orders. So if you've heard, about one of, if you've heard us talk about one of these before and haven't got them, um, you, can just, you can just buy them and they ship them now rather than needing to wait. I'm still very, very happy with my bridge keyboard. I absolutely love them uh, on both of my iPads. And I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. So... It still gets a big like after months of using it. That's still thoroughly recommended from me. So, yep, if you are interested. All right, that is a hashtag Ask Upgrade. You can always send in uh, questions for the show. Just send out a tweet with the hashtag Ask Upgrade, um, and we are going to move into our summer of fun topic for this episode, which is talking about the Miyazaki movie Kiki's Delivery Service. But before we do, let me thank our final sponsor of this week's show, and that is PDF Pen Eleven from our friends at Smile. PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro are the ultimate PDF viewing and editing apps for the Mac. You can add headers and footers along with watermarks to your documents, and it also includes a precision edit tool and you can scan OCR you can OCR scan your documents as well so they're readable which is insertable which is wonderful PDF Pen 11 is a huge upgrade and the new version includes some wonderful features like a split view mode for comparing pages in a document a new font bar for easier text editing the option to edit multiple form fields at the same time continuity camera support for scanning documents with your phone so you may have forgotten about this feature it was introduced with Mojave I think where you can use your iPhone's camera for an app on your Mac. So you can take a piece of paper, use the camera, and scan that into PDF Pen on the Mac, which is awesome. Uh, you also have the ability to add multiple items to the PDF Pen library simultaneously and so much more. I use PDF Pen on all of my devices, on my Mac, on my iPad, on my iPhone, all the time, probably every day. It was one of my most used and favorite applications. If you spend any time working with PDFs, you need PDF Pen 11. So go to smilesoftware.com slash podcast right now. That is smilesoftware.com slash podcast and you can find out more about PDF Pen 11. Our thanks to PDF Pen from Smile for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So Jason, is our summer of fun topic summer for this fun. episode. Summer of fun! Summer of fun! We're going to be doing a mic at, at the, the movies. movies. Kiki's Delivery Service. Yes. Um, I don't know if this was particularly a summer movie, but it was. We, we did Totoro last time, so it felt right to... I feel like you want to induct me into Miyazaki movies now. I feel like I, that's what's I happening. Do. I'm perfectly I happy do. with. 
and if you if it's windy where you are in the summertime, then it's perfect because yeah. it's all about the wind. And there's rain movie. too. There's rain as well. You know, sometimes there's rain. There is, yeah. So weather, the weather is is a major. Uh, I would say, Mike, that the major uh, uh, antagonist in Kiki's delivery service is the weather. Mm, okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. Um, I want to talk about as I usually do with Mike at the movie segments is what I kind of thought before I watched the movie. This this movie, so Kiki's Delivery Service, which is another uh, Miyazaki movie, we you know you, we spoke about Totoro last time. Um, I knew nothing about this movie. Um, I know that people love it, but I didn't know about this episode as much as I knew about Totoro. Right, like Totoro is just like that's just a character you know, right? Because you right. see the soft toys everywhere, or like it's just part of kind of um, pop culture in general. I think the Totoro character. And Kiki's Delivery Service, at least for me, doesn't have a thing like that where I would be familiar with something in the movie having never seen the movie. Yeah, sure. I I agree. I agree. It does not have that kind of iconic pop culture uh, character that you see in a stuffed animal or something like that or that everybody talks about. And that is it's just it's not that kind of movie. And what is your history with this movie? How many times have you seen it? I have seen it, I don't know, countless number of times, 10, 15, like lots of times. Um, And it's the first Miyazaki movie I saw. Okay. Um, I first heard about Miyazaki by the review of uh, this movie when it was released in the US. And it was, um, so it was reviewed on like uh, the Siskel and Ebert show, which was the movie, weekly movie review show. Um, and they were huge boosters of it, and it was literally a thing I'd never heard of. I thought that was interesting. Roger Ebert put it on his uh, best movies of the year list at the end of the year, and that surprised me. So I, I, I suppose probably the first time I heard about it was watching their best of the year episode in whenever, 1990, what, 1989, 19, I don't know when it was, when it came out in the U.S., um, late 80s, early 90s in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And I don't think I saw it for another five or ten years or whenever. I think I didn't see it until it came out on, on home video in the U.S., which was in the late 90s. Um, but it became – it's just delightful. I, I was I was enchanted the first time I saw it and have uh, have enjoyed it every time. We, we talked about – we did a Miyazaki episode of The Incomparable, and then we've gone back and we've done episodes about every Miyazaki movie uh, one by one. Not We haven't gotten to all of them, but we've done a bunch. And I think this was the first one we did for that. And uh, yeah, I just uh, that was so. So I also have a relationship with it where when I first saw it, I didn't have kids, and then I had little kids, and then bigger kids, and then bigger kids, and then bigger kids. And so like every time I watch it, and when I watch it with them, they have different memories because they've always you know it's been around for their whole life, so they've reacted to it in different ways over time. And you know, likewise, I've been a. I, I'm now, even though Kiki is young when she leaves home, you know, I am now at the point where my daughter is going to leave home to go off to college this fall. And so it has yet another kind of set of colors to it as the parents at the beginning say, you know, say goodbye to her and she flies off on her broom, on her mom's broom, not the broom she made. I did find that bit actually at the beginning, like a little bit. It was like interesting and sad, but I don't want to talk about the beginning of the movie just yet because I have a lot to say about it. I did okay. just kind of wanted to. Uh, Wrap it. I watched the English dub version, which came yep. from 
you because it's impossible to find these movies. <laughs> you, you have to buy them on disc is uh-huh. basically how you have to do it. Uh, John Syracuse disapproves of you watching the English dub. I approve. I think it's a yeah. good dub. I think it's very good. That's my preferred way of watching it. I have watched it uh, with subtitles. It is an interesting, different experience. And but... it's always fun for me again. Like Kirsten Dunst plays Kiki. I, I like that yeah, these movies... Very, very have... young Kirsten Dunst. Exactly. They have these people that become like megastars later on. Like we had... Uh, was it one of the Olsons played uh, the, the character in Totoro? But anyway, um, so it's like super interesting. Uh, no, it was um, Dakota Fanning, oh, it, right? It's Dakota Fanning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would say on the whole, I will kind of give my spoiler for how I what I thought about this movie. I did not like this as much as Totoro, hmm. but I did enjoy it. Okay. I think Good. it's missing something that Totoro has for me. Uh, what? That might be it. Uh, that, and I have some more thoughts about that later on. But I don't know if it's that so much because Totoro doesn't really. Well, Totoro, Totoro is kind of similar in this movie to this movie. Yes, in, they're very similar in, in that they're kind of episodic, and there's no no villain essentially. And the stakes don't exist like they're so low until something happens, right? Like there are no stakes in this movie until the dirigible is is in trouble. Right. Um, all of the other stakes are just like super simple regular life stuff, which is the same as Totoro, or it's like it's little things are happening until the young girl goes missing, right? And then the stakes right. that's when the stakes of the movie, but it's like the last 30 minutes of the movie, right? And so it's like other the than that, third. they're both sort of like sets of short stories, and yeah. there's a little more of a character. I mean, there's character arcs. Kiki definitely has a character arc. She's learning about herself, it's a journey of sort of mm-hmm. self discovery for her, but. Uh, yeah, they're similar. And I, I would say the other thing in this is that, and, and I find that people are split about like Totoro and Kiki. Totoro is cuter. And it's like, cause it's got the, it's got all the, it's got adorable little kid and it's got all the fun little, little Totoros. And I, I think Totoro is a cuter movie, whereas Kiki's Delivery Service is a coming of age movie. And yes. even though there's magic in it, you know, it is basically the magic of of Kiki's flying on a broomstick and uh, her talking cat. And that's that's what the magic is. A talking in, cat. In what what uh and and so that that is it's just it's a different it's a different flavor for sure than totoro i also i find totoro to be just so weird and also so remote even though there are people around they're kind of off in in nowhere and kiki is a movie about her finding her way in a city so there are Mm -hmm. a bunch of people around and she's she's um you know, learning about that too. So the the texture of it is very different, and I think that may be why they they um they feel different, and different people have their favorites. Uh, it also may be that I just came to Kiki first, and so I I love it, and then I saw Totoro, and I was like, oh, that's great too. This is one and, of the things that yeah. I was wondering. It's like, do do I love Totoro more because I saw it first? Like, I, I wonder if that might be it. Where um, going into this movie, I had a greater expectation and understanding of what I was going to be seeing. You know, like I knew it was going to be like super chill and like slice of life, which this is. Like when I say there's no stakes, obviously these things are important to the character, but like in the grand scheme of making a dramatic movie, um, you know, getting wet in a delivery, it's not like huge, <laughs> right? Yep. It's not like huge blockbuster stakes. But, exactly uh, right. But it, so. Uh, I feel like I had a better feeling of that's what this movie's going to be like going into this one, where in Totoro, everything was a surprise. And as I spoke about last time as well, right? Like I kept waiting for the thing and was like, oh, is that going to be bad? Is that going to be bad? And where in this movie, 
I was kind of letting it wash over me more because I figured I have a better understanding of what's going to happen towards the end of this movie here, like looking at yes. the cards that are being dealt. Um, so it's very different. So one thing I absolutely loved about this movie was how they spend no time establishing that witches exist. I think that is fantastic. It's kind of just like within like the first five lines of the movie, you basically know all of the backstory and exposition for the fact that there are witches existing at the age of 13. They go out on their own for a year to train. It's like yep. there is nothing more than that. And I kind of love that because it's like, well, this isn't at all what I was expecting. Uh, and I, I think that that is a really fun way to set up something that is so kind of wild is just to spend no time dealing with it, except for the fact that you now know everything you need within like two minutes. Yeah. And her, her mom is a, you know, potion witch or whatever. And this is just a coming of age thing. And it's there. And also the theme of the movie is there from the very beginning, which is uh, at 13, which is huh, uh, at 13, uh, they go out on their own. And it's, you know, this is the, you know, it is. It is an age that, that 13, 14, this is when uh, young, you know, this is when girls become women, basically, in, in many, many, many cultures uh, for lots of reasons, including biological reasons, right? And that's that's not said in this, but like that's part of this is Kiki is going from being a girl to being a woman. And this is what witches do. They go out on their own and they find their way. And it is it is like literally being a witch means you have a coming of age adventure, because you leave home and find your fortune. And uh, and all the parents can do is say, well, remember when, you know, we, we were that young? And then and then they have to just let them go because she has to do it on her own. Yeah, I couldn't help but think of Pokemon because um, this is basically what happens in Pokemon. Like you hit a certain age and then like you're a child, but you're just sent out into the world, right? Like off you go. <laughs> You've got to go and grow up now. And like it, it, it was just like a funny thing to me to be like, oh, yeah, this is just like what happens to Pokemon trainers. They go out into the world. Um, the I kind of love how geographically ambiguous that city is. It's like kind of London, kind of Paris in Japan labeled as Hawaii. Mm. It's like, it's what not, is going and, on? And it's not. So it, it is. Uh, that's an interesting read on it. So the truth is it's northern Europe. It is not meant to be Japan, even though it's for a Japanese audience. It's meant to be Northern Europe. Okay. Um, but when she's looking at the map, there are Hawaiian place names. I don't even. There are the, the, not, there's so much nonsense writing because yeah. there's also like there's there's the name of the shop, which is kind of nonsense, and it's in, all. Like, you'll see there's there's umlauts and stuff in it. So yep. the story is that Miyazaki and his collaborators uh, went to Sweden. And they went to, they spent time in Stockholm and they spent time in Visby, which is a little town on uh, the island of Gotland in the Baltic Sea. I've been to both of those places. And I, let me tell you, when I watch this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, I see it. Like, it's very Stockholm. It's very were, based on I, Stockholm. So and the more the pastoral stuff, stuff is Visby. Yeah. There was like double decker buses and yeah. the London Underground sign. Also trolleys, though those uh, those street yep, trolleys, which are, are kind of Amsterdamish mm-hmm. and and yeah, but also Stockholm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's just like a bunch. It was like really fun for me. <laughs> like this place, yeah. Well, is he everywhere. wants it to be <laughs> so. Key's delivery service. He, he Miyazaki wants it to be set in in a you know uh, indeterminate, but like he wanted that Northern European kind of vibe, right. from okay. it, which is which is I think an interesting choice because most of his movies are just in Japan or in a magical world that is very much like Japan. But but Kiki is different in that way. And and yes, that it is hilarious that so much of it it's got uh, you know Roman letters that maybe Japanese audiences can read, maybe they can't, uh, but it, it doesn't matter because they're mostly nonsense and they're just mm-hmm. meant to be like you know the, sending the message that this isn't Japan. 
it was just really fun. It's like, where is this place? Yep. Right, because yep. yeah, it was like so. When they're looking at the map, there was there was some places. I'm sure that I saw like Haleakala, which is like a mountain in Maui, yep. like listed on the map. And it's like, what is going on? It was kind of one of my favorite things. Is where is this movie now? Like, I really liked that. That was yeah. that was a lot of fun for me. Um, the I guess the the the, the putting the delivery service into Kiki's delivery service is. She becomes a delivery person because she can fly. Um, yeah, I really, the whole idea is witches have to find out what their role is going to be. Yeah, I really liked that. The way that kind of like witches are dealt with in this movie, it isn't necessarily what you would expect Like when you don't really know what you're going into. Most people are kind of like ambivalent to it. And then some people think that it's really exciting. But everybody is very aware of the fact that witches exist and they're not like hesitant towards it in any way which is especially weird because it is established that there are not many yeah well i mean she ends up in that in that city and she's like hey do you guys have witches here and they're like no we haven't had witches here in uh, you know in, in hundreds of years mm-hmm. or whatever like that and she's like that's great and that's it and okay. it's kind of fascinating to me again just as like a here's like a hallmark of this type of movie that that is not the thing like every other movie would be about making it the thing of like she's persecuted and then has to like save a child in the town and then she is uh, accepted. But like there is no requirement for her acceptance, even though she is a clear outsider. And she goes through that, right? Like she feels it herself. But her kind of feeling of being an outsider has kind of got nothing to do with the fact that she's a witch. She's just a young girl trying to fit into a new place. Right. And and it's very it's just like a super interesting thing where it's like every time you think you know what this movie's gonna be when you apply <laughs> typical maybe Western movie ideals or just like typical movie ideals in general, uh, you are surprised by the fact that it is not that. It is way smaller, right? Like everything is is smaller. Um, yeah, there's no whole like story arc about how there's discrimination against witches, and mm-hmm. it's just not her being a witch is a curiosity. It's almost like it's a personality quirk, right? It's that she does that has this cool thing she can do. It's like her her skill, but it's not that's not any any more than that. Other than the fact she has to wear the dress, the black dress, but mm-hmm. other than that, and it's like that. So there's other little things like it that I enjoy when when Gigi gets left in the house. Right, and I really enjoyed the animation of Gigi the cat sweating when the dog is coming near them. I thought that was kind of hilarious. Uh, that I really liked that. But then that is all resolved so quickly. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, th- I thought there was going to be more. Then it's just like, oh, she just went and she had to like negotiate with the artist lady uh, to get the do- the cat doll back, and then she just then nothing happens to the dog. The dog just helps them do the trade, and then that's it's dealt with. I I I know I keep talking about it, but like that's that's what I do enjoy in these movies, is them playing with my idea of idea of where they're going. Um, it's it's a lot of fun for me because it's so different. I really enjoy mm-hmm. it. I'd say it's almost more lifelike too, in the sense that life is really just sort of a sequence of mm-hmm. of small stories of things that happen, and you don't see that a lot in movies where they build up this whole kind of story arc of like, oh, this thing at the beginning is going to mean something at the end, and it's not it's not like that. There's certainly stuff that comes back, just like in life, you meet somebody and then you go see them later, and that stuff happens, but it's shaped. It's not shaped like uh, we've been trained to expect. Are there any parts of this movie that are particularly meaningful or stick out in your mind, like when you think of this movie? 
I, so it's funny. I think my, the part that sticks out for me the most is the old lady with her uh, assistant who mm-hmm. uh, at one point is pre- is pretending to ride the broom because she's an enthusiast for and flying things. And is way too excited about the dirigible disaster. Su- super excited That's about so that. Weird. She can't she can't believe that it's a yeah, it's a weird character but and then, then there's the nice old lady and they uh she wants to bake a pot, a herring and pumpkin pot pie f- for her That's uh, for well, Sweden, uh, for for her da- her granddaughter for her birthday, but it, the oven isn't working, and Kiki, you know, helps her to build the fire and all that, and then they bake it. But then it's late and it's raining, and she gets it there. And I really love in that it's so sad, but it's that scene where the the girl comes to the door, and it's actually one of the girls who hangs out with the boys, who um who are seen throughout the movie and sort of hang out with Tombo, the 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 kid who likes Kiki and, and is trying to build a flying machine because he can't fly and she can, which is a cute little uh, character thing. But anyway, she comes to the door, uh, this girl, and she's like, oh, it's one of grandma's stupid pies um, and and uh, closes the door. And Kiki just says, how can they be? Or no, it's the cat says, how could they be related? Because the lady is so nice and her granddaughter is so awful. And I just that always has stuck with me that in some ways there are so few villains in this movie. But one of the big villains other than the weather in Kiki is this ungrateful granddaughter. Like the 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 nice old lady has tried really hard and Kiki's really helped her to get this give her this present. And she doesn't care. Um, and I just thought that it's just kind of bittersweet and interesting and uh, and has a funny line about how how could she possibly be related to that nice old lady? It's great. That's that's strange. But that sticks with me, I think, more than that. And the fact that when she first takes off at the beginning of the movie uh, and then later in the movie, this happens again. I love the animation where she's bumping against the trees at the beginning. And later on, when she's trying to fly, she ends up kind of like coming up against buildings and kicking off with her legs like it feels very dreamlike in a way and 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 also so much work to animate that that uh those little details where she's kind of brushing against things and kind of throwing out an elbow or putting down a foot in order to not crash into something as she's kind of tenuously flying around those are those are sort of the two things that really stick with me when i think about this movie yeah i like that whole scene well i like the whole thing when she's like trying to to relearn to fly right and she's like running down that mountain or that that it's like not mountain like the hillside Hillside, right, yeah. she's like falling into the ditch and stuff but yeah when when she then takes that like and i figure it's like part that she uh is trying to like get the confidence and also that the broom is weird right that she's just kind of like can't control right. it because it's not like a regular broom for her um which i i, I did actually kind of laugh to myself that it's like oh witches can fly with any broom turns out it's just got to be a broom and then i'm starting to think in my brain of like all right so why what what is it about brooms right like i kind of like that thought it's like oh any broom can fly they just don't necessarily fly when well. she's looking for a broom or i know she's looking for a broom this time there's a guy standing in the street with a ladder and i thought yeah try that can you fly a ladder <laughs> have you ever tried before give it a shot maybe <laughs> <laughs> it's just any anything really. She's like, like just oh, a wood a wooden a object. Lock? I don't know. Maybe there was there's a mop at one point, and I thought I thought uh, could you just fly a mop? Maybe I don't know if it's not wet. Is it too heavy if it's wet? I, mysteries of Kiki. Yeah. Uh, Tombo needs to get some chill. That's my my my, my reading on Tombo. Tombo needs he to does. just get some chill. Um, this boy who likes you is hanging out outside the bakery <laughs> in the rainstorm. He's a little intense. Yeah, he he needs 
which is like everything about him needs to get he needs to get some chill. He does a decent job when she brings the bread, uh when Sono like kind of hashes a devious plan and she like brings the order to him and then mm-hmm. he's more of like a regular person. But up until that point it's like, dude, just just calm down a little bit, like and you and you might be okay here. Which is yeah. it's kinda hilarious. Yeah. Well and the whole bakery family kind of thing you mentioned Osono, like she's pregnant and her mm-hmm. husband is the is the strong silent type. He doesn't he just kinda grunts and doesn't really say anything. And uh they offer her the place to stay and she works in the bakery and also delivers stuff and it's just uh it's just kinda homey and and, and nice and sweet. And at least the, when she meets her it's that it's a great little meeting scene where the baby has left its pacifier behind and Kiki says, Oh, I can deliver it and it, that shot, I love that shot shot so much she takes the the pacifier and then she just runs to the 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 wall and jumps over it and, and the, the bakery lady is like <gasps> like yeah. oh no she's just jumped to her death and then she looks over and just whoop, little little witch is flying away it's like i love that that's great um i also love the importance of that pacifier right like everything it's too important like she's screaming yeah. down the mountain right like like the hillside i keep calling it a mountain and it's just like it's it's really funny to me that it's like i'm just gonna it's like such a big thing that has to be dealt with yeah the fact is there is another pacifier just like it at home but she's gonna scream the whole way home that's what's gonna happen there but as, yeah. a, as a as a parent i can say that now but at the time it's still like oh no that baby it's like the biggest threat in the world is oh no that baby doesn't have a pacifier if we don't get it back to that baby in five minutes it'll explode that's, exactly that's how it's treated it's like uh it just has to be done but you know it's just a sad baby that left something behind at a bakery i have a question for you yeah do do you think that Kiki ever hears Gigi talk again? Okay, so on the incomparable, <laughs> we spent a long time debating because why the cat I, stops it, talking and whether the cat ever starts talking again. A long time, and I think it's purposeful in the movie to realize that nobody else can hear Gigi anyway. I just right. thought Gigi was a talking cat, not that witches can talk to black cats, and. Because it's more than the talking, all of the cat's mannerisms change when yeah. it finds a mate. Right. So it's not just that she doesn't have the same powers anymore. Gigi just becomes like a regular cat. And it, yeah, it, it's like, and then because then there's this whole question of like, did she ever even lose her powers in the first place? Like, she may have just been dealing with a crisis of confidence. And Gigi becoming a real cat or making a choice mm-hmm. to be a real cat rather than a magic cat uh, kind of threw her off base. So what is your feeling on this then? So there, there are many, many theories about this. It is interesting that her loss of confidence is also tied in with her lack of the ability to understand him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes it even more complicated. Um, I'll, I'll complicate it further, Mike. In the original Disney English dub with Phil Hartman, mm-hmm. The cat talks again at the end. Oh, gosh. Okay. And Miyazaki actually was like, Mm-mm. nope, 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 nope. And so the version that, that you saw and that is available now on video in with English-speaking countries, they actually took out a lot of the stuff they added in to make it more match what Miyazaki went. And, and the cat doesn't talk mm. again at the end. So Miyazaki says it's it, it, he doesn't want you to hear the cat talking at the end. I think the implication is that uh, not so much because the cat 
is like ha- has is has found a mate and is having kittens, little black and white kittens. Um uh, and I think it's that she's grown up. I, that that I think is the right interpretation. Uh-huh. Anybody uh-huh. can have it. I think it's that it's the coming of age. It is literally part of the coming of age. Is that when you become an adult witch, you are not your child self anymore, and the child self talks to the cat, but the adults don't. And and it's just all of the parts of things of of growing up. And we had a whole deep debate about this in the incomparable but that's that's where i come down is that i at this point is that uh, i think it's it's just she's grown up and so she doesn't hear the cat anymore uh, okay I, I you know what i think that 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 matches I, that makes a lot of sense to me because the mannerisms of Gigi don't change at the end of the movie again like still looks like a cat right not like yeah. a character um so yeah i think Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, but it is it is an interesting little little quirk of the movie that you think that she's losing contact with the cat because she's losing contact with her powers, but it's really something bigger, which is that she's she's got to find her uh, self confidence and grow into the woman that she needs to be, and she goes off and has her little walkabout with the uh, with the artist out in the forest, mm-hmm. which is a nice callback that the artist comes and, and gets her. And that's, uh, I forget her name, Ursula, maybe, uh, but it's uh, Janine Garofalo in the dub. And uh, they go out and she tell, talks about how she had trouble drawing. Uh, and then she went through this creative period where she uh, she figured it out. And then she was able to be creative again and, and, and gives that advice as somebody who went through it. And I think that's all really good. So I think that in the end, you know, the crisis of confidence is really just part of the growing up part of of kiki's journey i like this movie a lot i didn't enjoy it as much as totoro but that's not to say i didn't enjoy it i just have a, a favorite i think um out oh, of the sure. two and i look forward to the next um miyazaki movie that you said yeah. for me jason so okay so i i will i will caution you i think these are the two best ones that's and fine. i i think that there are not i'm not sure there's another miyazaki movie that's quite like these two this is my favorite Miyazaki. The other Miyazaki movies have some of them are really kind of psychedelic and some of them are very much more traditionally plotted, hmm. which is not to say that they aren't great, but they are uh they are a little less of this kind of um what if we made a movie without a much of a plot and no bad guys and it was just a story, a nice story about people living their lives in interesting ways with magic. Uh I'm not sure there are other movies that are quite like this other than maybe Ponyo which is about a fish and is super weird but we'll get to that another time <laughs> alright if you want to find the show notes for this week's episode you can go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 251 we have some great summer of fun episodes planned over the next few weeks with some very special guests so you can look out for those I'm excited about our next few weeks of Summer of Fun episodes. Um, mm-hmm. I want to thank again our wonderful sponsors for this episode, Astropad Studio, ExpressVPN, ButcherBox, and PDF Pen 11 from Smile. You can find Jason online at sixcolors.com and at jsnell on Twitter. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, everybody.